This morning starts a, a couple of weeks that we, we go through three more incidents that are recorded of Christ's life, and, and really they talk about a subject that I, I wish we could just make a circle in my living room and talk as a family, and just sit together and, and chat, and, but you all won't fit in my living room, and so we're going to do that here, and we'll spend a couple weeks on, on the topic, and that's the topic of traditions. And it's a topic where angels fear to tread, and, and I fear to tread. <laughs> and, but, but here we go, because it's what Jesus addresses in his next several teachings in the book of Mark. And we dare not skip that, and we dare not ignore that. I learned a lot about traditions four weeks ago on Women's Retreat weekend, as I had three children at home. And I discovered we have a lot of traditions. Dad, that's not where the cup goes. Dad, you're driving in the wrong lane. I didn't know there was a lane you're supposed to drive in on the way home from school. Dad, that's not the order of we do things going to bed. We wash our hands and then brush our teeth. Or I don't know which order it is. At that point, it's like, you're just going to bed. Um, <laughs> We're just getting these things done. Dad, that's not what we have for breakfast. Dad, that's not. Dad, that's not. That, ah. <laughs> Praise God for moms. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> but my, my children already know at 3, 4, and 6, they know about traditions. And they have them steeped in their mind. And they know when we break them. Don't they? They know when I break them. <laughs> Mom doesn't break them so often. <laughs> this week, we've also gotten a, a chance to see a lot of traditions, haven't we? With the royal wedding. I don't know, anyone watch the royal wedding? I did not, so this is all hearsay. But I, I was re- reading something on, on the internet about why they did certain things. And, and in one case, the, the groom doesn't actually watch the bride come down the aisle. Did you read about that or see that? And I'm like, oh man, that's... As a pastor, that's my favorite time uh, of a wedding, is standing next to the groom when he first sees his bride and just starts drooling all over the place and just crying and, and all that. It's, it's awesome. But they don't do that. And I'm like, well, why didn't they do that? But it was tradition, because according to English tradition for weddings, the groom is to be the last person that sees the bride. And so they let her come down, and it isn't until she go, he goes and, and receives her that he sees the bride. And so tradition can, can decide and can tell us how we do a whole number of things. When I do premarital counseling, one of the, the first exercises we do, we call the, the personal Ten Commandments for couples. And I don't give them Ten Commandments. I ask them to write down or, or think through what are their Ten Commandments for each other. Things like the toilet paper always goes over. Because that's what's right. The toothpaste is always squeezed from the bottom. (laughs) Those are personal Ten Commandments. We have dinner at 6 o'clock. But, like I said, I want this to be more like my living room. What personal Ten Commandments or what church Ten Commandments do we have here of how we do things? 
And it's hard to think through because the thing about what's normal and the thing about our traditions is we often do them without realizing we do them. Like my children, it informed me so vocally. What are some of ours? You know, I almost mixed that up this morning. I was going to move announcements three songs in, and I thought, no, I'll just be too crucified. That would border on heresy. We have a way of doing things. If you're new, you don't know. If you're new, you don't know what that way of doing things is. That's right. Sort of like me watching the kids without my wife. You stumble into things. It's true, and we need to be aware of that. What else? I'd preach like this, <laughs> or have to preach like this. <laughs> How many are sitting in roughly the same area they sat in, la- well, two weeks ago? Last week was really full and hard to find seats, but okay. A few of you aren't, and I, I understand that. That's good. Yeah, that's a tradition that we have that we just fall into. You know, the same was true of teaching in college. I never did make a seating chart in college because after the first week or two, after the first class or two, all the students sat in the same spot anyway. It just happened. What else? We do communion on the first Sunday of the month. And except for today, because we, 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 we broke tradition. <laughs> and we did it last Sunday on Easter instead of this Sunday. But that's a tradition, okay? Good. Now we're seeing, okay, this is how we normally do things. couple more. The way we hand out communion. We have a, a, a very defined way of doing that. We break tradition on Christmas usually and do a family communion and, and some other occasions, but you're right, absolutely. Benevolent offering once a month. Benevolent offering once a month, first Sunday of the month at the door. Stand while we read the word. When it rains, Don opens the gate and stands out there with an umbrella. <laughs> I didn't even know that. <laughs> When it when it does Don know that? That's right. When it rains, Don opens the side gate so people can get in under the cover and stands out there with an umbrella to help people from their cars. Just little little traditions. Are our traditions bad? Are traditions good? See, always did I hear always? Remember, we're in my living room. It's a little different different setting this morning. That's the question of the next two weeks. Are traditions bad? Are traditions good? I think in the title I put traditions, friend or foe. And the question we want to ask is, do they nourish our souls or are they poison to our souls? And what's the difference? How do we know the difference? What was Jesus trying to teach as he taught about traditions and confronted the Pharisees about some traditions? Traditions to be, to be nourishing need to be based on the Bible. Absolutely. And we're going to, that, that's going to be one of our points today. And Jesus brings that up very clearly. We have all kinds of traditions. We have personal traditions. We have traditions of, of when I do my quiet time. 
When, do I do that in the morning or the evening? What is right? And for some of you, it's morning, of course. There is no other time to read God's Word. For some of you that don't wake up till noon, maybe you do it in the evening. Is the point when you do it, or is the point being faithful to God's Word? And those are the kinds of things that we want to talk about and look at this morning. One of the traditions that we have is that we do joy to the world at Christmas time. Anyone think it was a little weird that we sang Joy to the World this morning? And that we did it for offertory? My son, Mark, leaned over to me and said, Oh, oh, are we going to do Hark the Herald? (laughs) Next week. Next week. No, son, we're not. (laughs) Let me tell you about Joy to the World. Do Do you know who wrote Joy to the World? Isaac Watts wrote Joy to the World. And it was written from Psalm 98, actually, from the second. We've lost the first part of the the hymn that was on the first part of Psalm 98, but the the verses that we sing are out of the second half of Psalm 98. Do you know why he wrote it? To celebrate and look forward to the second coming of Christ. But traditionally, we do it at Christmas. Now, I'm fine with doing it at Christmas because the first coming of Christ and the Advent is also a a joyous occasion and it it is a a foretaste and a, a looking forward to Christ coming back. But tradition in that case has limited our use of that hymn to a certain time of the year beyond what it was intended for. And so traditions can be helpful. Traditions can be limiting. And so I I wanted to do that this morning. And and I'm the one that asked it. Don't crucify Nick. Um, To mix things up, to make us think. Think about the words of joy to the world, though. And and we, we think of it at the Advent, the birth of Christ, but think about how it might point us to the second coming of Christ and looking forward to that. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. We sang verse 3 this morning, which we don't often sing. Do you remember the words to that? Yeah. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as, far as the curse is found. That at the second coming of Christ, he will ultimately reverse the curse for all time. It's a song of hope and a song looking forward. But doesn't that change how we look at a song? That changes everything about that song when we think of the context, when we think of the meaning. And think of the richness to sing that at Christmas time, celebrating the birth of Christ while looking forward to the hope of his return. And again, the tradition of singing it at Christmas isn't bad. But if we don't know that, we're missing. We're missing what could happen. Turn with me to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, and I want to give a little bit of a reminder of where we've been in Mark and then a little bit of context to understand traditions and and to take the next couple of, or this week and next week and understand what we're talking about. But in Mark chapter 2, we're, we're in the middle of five stories where Jesus is confronting the Pharisees. Where, or, or the Pharisees are attempting to confront Jesus. And Jesus is correcting them. And this morning we come to the middle one. Remember the first one was Jesus healed the paralytic that was let down through the ceiling. 
And he said, your sins are forgiven. And then he healed them. And there was this big uproar. How could Jesus forgive sins? And then we saw the calling of Matthew and or Levi. And Levi threw a party and, and brought in all of the other tax collectors and people that the Pharisees said, no, those are, those are not spiritual people. Why would you eat? They're unclean. Why would you even associate with them? And Jesus, Jesus went to them because they were willing to hear. And it says that many of them became disciples. And he confronted their ideas of who they should be with and the norms of, of reaching beyond, needing to reach beyond and reach out to other people. Now I understand, and I wasn't aware of it while I was preaching that day, but I understand that I in, inadvertently mentioned that it was good to eat people. <laughs> that is not what I meant. But it's appropriate that the next story is about fasting. And so the story we come to today is about fasting. And, and then the next two stories that we'll look at next week are about the Sabbath. And Jesus is taking very prescribed traditions that the Pharisees had defined and put on other people, and He's attacking them. And He's correcting them. And through each of these stories, we see the Pharisees getting angrier and angrier as at every turn, Jesus challenges the way they lived the way they looked at life, their motives, their actions, and their traditions. And so today we'll be looking at verses 18 to 22. Before we actually go there, though, I want to give a little bit more context that we can use for the discussion both today and next week. Why are traditions so important to us? Why do we hold them so tightly and at times hold them tightly enough to hit someone else over the head with them, why are they so important to us? When we talk about traditions, people get passionate, people get defensive, people get uptight, people get joyous. What is it about traditions that does that? See, one of the foundational things is that traditions are something that everyone has. In your notes, I think I put, what is a spiritual tradition? And it helps us to start by defining what we're even talking about. I'm going to give you two definitions, and I'll repeat them so you can write them down. The first one's a long form, the second one's a short form. Spiritual tradition. A form or activity, a form or activity designed by man to apply God's truth to a particular time, people, and situation. You guys got all, the, got, get, all got that the first time through? Let me, let me read it again. A form or activity designed by man to apply God's truth. So a form or activity designed by man to apply God's truth to a particular time, people, and situation. to a particular time, people, and situation. So it's a way that we as people take the truths of Scripture and apply them to real life. And that's why I say we all have traditions. We have to be careful of saying, oh, that person likes traditions and I don't. No, no, you're all applying God's truth somehow. Or not applying it somehow. And that becomes a tradition as well. Short form. 
people's way of applying biblical principles to daily lives. It's our way of applying biblical principles to daily lives. Some of you are saying, why didn't you just say that? But it's helpful to understand what we're talking about when we say spiritual traditions. How do we apply biblical principles and bring them into daily life? Maybe it's something like praying before meals. That's taking a principle of gratitude and applying it to daily life before we eat together. It's taking a principle of dependence on God. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about spiritual traditions. But why do we hold them so tightly? Are they positive or negative? And I I think I gave you a, a green box and a red box. And over the green box, I would write the word nourish. And over the red box, write the word poison or toxic. Nourish or toxic. We're going to um, go a little old school today. I love overheads. I love being able to write as we talk. So I'm going to do the same thing on the screen here. Do this, this, and we have nourish or poison or toxic. And to understand, and and, and these again, I just want to give some some basic ideas that then we'll we'll look at further. And apparently we need to bring it down. And sorry about the writing. It's an overhead. It's a challenge to keep you awake. But let me tell you a story to, to, to help us wade through this. A number of years back, I was up in the Sierras, and um, I love to fish. And fish for, we fish for trout up there. And one of the rules are, if you catch it, you clean it. Sort of a rule I despise, or a tradition. And so I'm cleaning fish, and, I, and I, I have a buck knife that opens up and has a little button on the bottom. It's a little thicker than sometimes knives people use to clean fish, but I, but I like it. It feels good in my hand. And, and so I'm cleaning fish, and, and not to get too much in detail, but taking the knife and cutting them open and, and bringing out the insides and making them to where we can cook them. Is the knife helpful? Absolutely. Could I do it without the knife? No, absolutely not. And so that's the tool that I'm using, and it's working very well. Now, after I've done this a number of times, as can often happen, it's easy to get careless. Because, you know, the family's around, and you're talking to people, and, and so I, I'm, I'm filleting the fish, or cleaning the fish, and, and I mistake where the knife was, and I take my thumb and go down the blade, and I put a, a very deep gash in my thumb. Is the knife good or bad? John, is that you? <laughs> it, it depends on how I used it, doesn't it? it it's operator error. And, and it, was, it was a little weird because when you're cleaning fish, it's just hard to tell how deep the cut is and, and what blood is yours and theirs and, and all of that. But it, it, I was careless, and that same tool that was essential to what I was doing became something that was very harmful to me. Had the tool changed? No. Had my usage of the tool changed? Absolutely. Now later, I, I've, I've taken uh, the college career group up many times up there. This is where we camp. And 
usually take them fishing, and, and the tradition is if you catch it, you clean it. And they love that one. <laughs> and so I, I bring them around, and we bring the bucket out, and I've handed my knife off to people, and sometimes they can use it, and sometimes they can't. For some, it's just a, it, it's a little awkward for them, and they like a little smaller knife. Um, for some, one, one person accidentally hit the button, and the knife closed up on their hand. And praise God, we caught it before it did any cutting, so there was no damage. But it was it was very interesting to me that that same tool again, in different hands, was used different ways. Now keep that story in mind as we talk about traditions, because I think it's a perfect word picture of what we want to talk about in traditions and as, as we study what God is teaching, what Jesus is teaching here. Traditions. Why do we hold them so tightly? First side is the nourish, and, and we hold them tightly because they're helpful. They're essential. They nourish our souls because somehow we need to apply biblical truths to life. And so the first thing that I would put there is that it shows application. And what I mean by that is if we never develop any spiritual traditions, that tells me we're not trying to apply God's Word. They're essential for for moving forward with God's Word and applying them and growing. Secondly, and I'm moving through these quickly because we'll hit some of them again as we look through the text. They can provide accountability and motivation. We're just going to do that. Motivation. When we have a tradition, sometimes we we would have to say, you know, I don't feel like reading God's Word today. But we have a tradition that helps us do that. On Sunday mornings, you may say, I don't feel like coming to church some Sunday mornings. Sometimes I'm pretty tired. But that tradition keeps us motivated and keeps us doing what we should be doing in things that help us grow, that nourish the soul. Third, they can help us take others into consideration. And I'm speaking here of traditions at the church level and at the body level. We, we have different ways we do things, and we've developed those over time in consideration of each other. There's things that we do at Village that are, are not how I would do it personally, but it's what meets the needs of the body. And that is a wonderful thing, and traditions help us consider everybody instead of just basing everything we do as a group on me or on you or, or on, on personal preferences. And they're valuable in that way. Fourth, traditions help us respect wisdom. It allows us to connect with the past. Those that have gone before were also filled with the Holy Spirit. Those that have gone before also studied God's Word and were men and women of God. And to hear what they did and why they did it is a valuable thing, a valuable tool that we should never lose. That connection with the past is what allows us to build on the past and continue to grow. Those are just four four reasons why I think we hold so tightly on the nourished side to traditions. Because we crave to apply God's Word. We, We look for accountability. We know that we need it. We know in our hearts that we shouldn't be self-centered, that we should be looking out for others. And that connection to the past has been so beneficial to people and is beneficial 
And so these things build just a deep appreciation for tradition. And they should. The knife is useful. The knife is essential. However, on the other side of things, we often have reasons we hold to traditions that are really quite toxic, that, that are destroying our souls, that are poisoning our souls. And these, again, I'll do briefly, because this is where, where Jesus more dwells in the next three stories, because he's dealing with the Pharisees. He's dealing with a group that has become toxic in their traditions. Traditions can help us feel comfortable. Safe. And so we like them. We like to hold on to them. The problem with that is, is Jesus didn't come to make us comfortable. He came to reach a world with the gospel. And that might be making us uncomfortable. Now, is it wrong that there's things that we enjoy and appreciate? No. But understand this, if that is the only reason we hold on to a tradition then it is probably hindering us spiritually and toxic to our souls. And that starts to step on my toes sometimes. Because there are times that, that I just like to do things because I like them that way. Because I'm comfortable with them that way. And what that leads to is really an empty religion where I'm not stretched anymore. Where I'm not growing anymore. I don't have to deal with change that way. I can remember the glory years. And that's a danger of traditions. Something we need to be careful of. We feel better if we can earn our salvation. Let me explain this one. We talked at the beginning in January about grace and grace alone. And as I look at my heart and as I pastor, I am convinced that we really don't appreciate the concept of grace. That we just don't get it. That it is so foreign to us that we always come back to, I still need to do something. Whereas God's grace says you are saved because of nothing you've done, nothing you can do. It is solely the work of Christ. And we know that for salvation, but then we can carry that into our Christian walks. Okay, yes, by grace I was saved, praise God. But now that I'm a believer and working out my salvation with trembling, now I need to to really focus on works. And again, it's not that that becomes the works aren't our focus at that point. They're the result of that faith. They're the result of that walk with God. But it is so much easier for me to live by a list than to live by faith. And so we hold on to traditions because legalism feels much better in working out our salvation. One author wrote, I myself struggle between legalism and waywardness, between determinism and grace. See, it's not as comfortable to live by grace. We like our lists. Another reason why I think we hold on to traditions so tightly is we use them to justify our preferences. 
See, if I can justify my preferences, then I can get what I want. And if I can use traditions to do that, to elevate what I like, my way of applying Scripture to what everyone should do, then I get what I want. And this comes straight out of pride. Straight out of pride. Finally, a fourth one. We crave traditions because they have worked in the past. And so we expand them and enlarge them. And we take a pragmatist approach where if it works, it must be right. Now keep in mind, is the knife good or bad? The knife is a tool. What I do with the knife defines whether it's nourishing or whether it's poison. Please don't take either of these lists as saying everything should be tradition or nothing should be tradition. The point of the list and the point of the teaching that we're going to get to is not that traditions are good or traditions are bad. It's how we come to them and how we use them. Jesus was not coming to abolish the law, but to correct, to fulfill. We must understand that. Let me One other chart before we jump into the passage in Mark that helps us understand. I call this a life cycle of tradition. When a tradition is formed, and up at the top here again we'll put nourish. In writing you can't read. And down here we'll put poison. Way down there. Well, okay, it's down there. When a tradition is formed, when, when I am coming to, okay, how do I apply this truth? How do I apply the truth of gratitude? How do I, I, I fit God's Word into my life, or rather order my life around God's Word? Then I'm coming up with a tradition. And when you come up with a tradition, it usually starts up here on nourish. And fairly high on nourish, not down on the line. And as we, we try it and refine it and, and, and really get into it and, and become disciplined about it, it becomes very helpful often. And this is a generalism. There are all kinds of other factors that can change this. Over time, the longer I do it, this happens. and It becomes less and less nourishing. But it doesn't stop at the line. The longer we hold to a tradition, the more poisonous it tends to get. For a lot of reasons that, that Jesus is going to talk about in these next stories. Now, keep in mind that's if nothing is done with it. So this is just if a tradition is started and then it's just carried on for tradition's sake, this is what usually happens. This time frame here, it can vary depending on the tradition. It can vary depending on um, the application of that tradition. But I would argue that that's anywhere from six months to a year before we really start to lose focus of why we've done what we're doing. Think about that as it applies to church ministries. Think about that as it applies to songs that we sing. One of the traditions that each of us have is our preference in songs. And the longer we sing a song, the more that it's in danger of becoming detrimental. 
The longer we do a ministry, the more that it's in danger of losing its focus. Now keep in mind, all of this is if nothing is done with it. Because what Jesus is coming to do, He is not saying drop it. He is saying, let's remember why we do it. Let's remember the focus. And and at any point in this line, if we remember the meaning, then suddenly we start the cycle over. And usually that cycle goes up from where we left it. For instance, Joy to the World. A song that we've sung so many times that sometimes we don't know the meaning of it anymore. But now this morning, as we talked about it and bring it up and, and talked about why it was written, that has a whole, a whole new meaning and a whole new impact. It's interesting. One of the questions I like to ask people, sometimes people will come and say, oh, I, and, and we're going to hit a lot of different areas of the church, but I know worship is, is one of those areas where there can be all these worship wars and there, there ought not to be. And sometimes people will come up after a service and say, oh man, I loved worship this morning. I loved this song. I loved that song. And sometimes it's, it's some of the modern worship. Sometimes it's some of the hymns that we do. Sometimes it's some of the contemporary worship that we do. And the question that I like to ask all of them is, why did you like it? What words did you really like out of it? And more often than not, there's no answer. Say, well, um, I don't know, it just, it brings back really good memories. And it might do that, but is that the purpose of worship? And if that's the only reason we sing a song, then it has become toxic to our souls. Now, I'm not saying that's not a valid reason and part of a reason, but if that's the only reason and we've lost sight of, worship should always be coming before the throne of God and always be bringing Him praise and always be on our knees humbly worshiping the Creator of the universe and the Savior of our souls. If we miss that point, the tradition is now in the downward slope. And I've got to say, that can be true of any song. Some of you might say, well, traditions, oh, you're, you're going to talk to all those things we've held for a long time. Get the time range I mentioned? It might be, in a, be, be a tradition, something we do here at Village that we've only done for a year, and we've already lost sight of why we do it. We have a couple of ministries that, that we started two, three years ago that were at that point. Think of Second Harvest. Why do we do Second Harvest? And we need to remember why we do Second Harvest. So that it doesn't become just something we do to, to help us not feel guilty. But it should be something we're doing to actively try to reach our, our neighborhood for Jesus Christ. Why do we do Awana? been three years now, almost. And it's time to rethink, okay, why do we do Awana? Not that we drop it, not that we change it, but remember the passion for the lost kids. To remember the kids that have accepted Christ this year because of Awana. And suddenly, when you get that, a purpose goes boom! And I know why we're doing it again. And my heart, now it's, it's not just an empty tradition, now it's something that we're doing for the kingdom of God.
One last little quick note. When we pass on traditions to others, they almost always start below us on the scale. So if we pass on a tradition here, the next person is usually starting here. Think of something like prayer at mealtime. If we as parents have lost track of why we do it and are not intentional about passing that on, we'll pass that on here and our kids will just go like that with it. And praying at mealtime might end up being poison to their souls. Because we might be teaching empty religion instead of real, a real walk with God. Now understand, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray at meals. We pray at every meal because that's vital to us. That's not the issue. The issue is reminding our children why we do it. It's a tool. What do I do with that? Okay, enough context. That, that's context for both this week and next week. Let's dig in to Jesus confronting the Pharisees in these three passages, one this morning, two next week, what they're talking about with tradition. Mark chapter 2, verse, verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. The first issue, the first tradition that Jesus confronts is that of fasting. And actually, the, the Pharisees and the people around come to Jesus and confront him about fasting and why his disciples aren't fasting. And in verse 18, we read, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And we have to understand what's going on with fasting. And, and it's probably different for John's disciples and the Pharisees. One of the purposes for fasting, and, and there were several purposes for fasting in the Old Testament and, and at this time, one of the purposes for fasting was to look forward or long for the Messiah. Now, they also fasted for repentance of sins. They also fasted in mourning for a death or, <coughs> or some tragic event. But fasting for John's disciples was a fasting saying, we are looking forward to the Messiah. At this point, there had become a culture, especially with the Pharisees, that, that carried over a little bit to John's disciples, that if we fast enough, if we get all of Israel to fast, we can actually bring the return of the Messiah sooner. Because they saw fasting as, as a way to, to get their hearts right, to, to create an environment where the Messiah would come. Keep in mind the context. If you look at the last passage that we talked about, Jesus just called Levi, and and what what did Levi do? He threw a feast, a party. 
And we don't know for sure, but a number of commentators, and I tend to agree with them, think that perhaps this interaction happened at that party, at that feast, where Jesus and his disciples are eating and people are watching it. And and at this time, John's disciples and the Pharisees are not eating. And so there is this dilemma, there is this confrontation. For the Pharisees, fasting had become a, a weekly tradition. Twice a week. Monday and Thursday. That was something they did. And they were very open about it. They were up front in front of people. If, if you look at Luke 18, 9 through 14, Jesus it says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, and they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, and he's praying out loud, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. First thing he mentions, I fast twice a week. What is the Pharisee doing? He's taking a tradition and using it to exalt himself, using it to feel spiritual. Now, fasting probably started, in fact, it did start as as a wonderful tool of repentance, a, a tool of making sure that our focus was on God. But it was no longer that for the Pharisees. Now it was some act that they were, that was defined that they must do in order to try to sway God. And that self exaltation, that notion of that if we do these spiritual traditions, I can feel more spiritual, it can actually stop growth spiritually. And so the first principle that we look at to make sure traditions and ministries nourish and not poison is that spiritual traditions do not make you spiritually mature. Spiritual traditions do not make you spiritually mature. They can help in that process. They are a tool in that process. But they are not the end goal. They are not the end result. Today in your worship folder, you have rooted reading for May. And something that we've been doing for a year and a half as a church now, and, and it's been wonderful to see as a church us reading through the Bible. And, and I strongly encourage that. But if that becomes the list of what you have to do to be spiritual, it has now become poison. Not that we shouldn't read the Word. Read the Word. Be in the Word. But why are we doing that? See, spiritual traditions do not make you spiritually mature. And the Pharisees and John's disciples had that mixed up, especially the Pharisees. And the people came to him and said, why do John's disciples, and and the tone of this question is accusatory. It's challenging. It's not an honest question. Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but, but your disciples don't fast? See, they viewed what they were doing as producing merit and holiness in their hearts. And so the assumption is, if somebody else isn't doing it, they are not holy in their hearts. And in fact, they are keeping the Messiah from coming. How dare they? 
And the more that we sometimes do to be spiritually mature, the more spiritual disciplines we do, the more times we attend church, the more times we open our Bible, the danger, now all those things are are essential, the danger is if we start to view those as the goal. If we start to exalt ourselves that we feel spiritual because of those things. How do we gain spiritual maturity? By walking with our Lord and Savior. By communion with Him. By a heart that is studying God's Word because it's His letter to us. Because it's His truth about Himself. And if we lose that side of it, we lose the growth. I, I challenge some of you and exhort some of you that are in Bible colleges and seminaries or doing a lot of study of theology, this is, a, this is a danger. This is a tough one. There was a reason why at Talbot we called it cemetery. And there's a reason why so many men I watched walk away from God and walk away from spiritual maturity and, and so many men would say seminary was the driest time of their spiritual walk. And you're like, What? And you're studying God's Word day and night. You're writing papers on it. You're digging into it. And a couple reasons. One, it becomes academic instead of relational. But the other is, it's so easy to think you've arrived. To think that those exercises make you spiritual. Spiritual traditions do not make you spiritually mature. The tone of the Pharisees, the tone of the people asking is one of spiritual superiority. But also the inverse is true. Not doing my traditions does not make you less spiritually mature. And and the challenge here is, is this Rabbi Jesus going to follow our traditions? Because if He's not, then we'll throw away everything He says. Because our traditions are the defining point. But Jesus corrects that. So if we ask a question about our own spiritual traditions, about our own ministry, we ask the question, has the tradition become the purpose rather than the tool? Has the tradition become the purpose rather than the tool? Has the ministry become the purpose rather than the tool? Every ministry we should be asking, is this bringing people closer to God? Not because they're coming to this ministry, but is this really bringing people into relationship with God? If it isn't, and we're just holding on to it because we've always done it, then it's a purpose rather than a tool. Another point, point number two, that's out of the same verse. Be careful not to elevate man-made traditions to God's commands. Be careful not to elevate man-made traditions to God's commands. Sort of goes with number one. Same verse and out of the same principle. Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not, do not fast? It's interesting. In the Old Testament, only one day of fasting was mandatory. Day of Atonement. That was the only day that that the law said that the Jews needed to fast. Now, in Zechariah, we do have four other times. There was a fasting in the fourth, the fifth, the seventh, and the tenth month. 
But that wasn't prescribed. That was something that they had already brought into tradition. Is that a bad tradition? No. Depends on the reason why they were doing it. In those cases, it was looking forward to the Messiah out of repentance. And so the Pharisees have taken something that was not explicitly stated in God's Word and turned it into Monday and Thursday, you must fast or you're not spiritual. Do you see what's happening here? Do you see why Jesus had to confront it? Because they had completely switched up what God commanded. And they had taken their tradition, which probably started for very good reasons, and they had elevated that to now that is God's command. And it took precedence over God's Word. We need to know what is Scripture and what is not. We're going to come back to that in Mark chapter 7 in a number of months, but I'll read Mark 7, 6-8. through 8. And He being Jesus said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? A little bit stronger language a little bit later in the ministry as He's dealing with them. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors Me with their lips, but their heart is far from Me. In vain do they worship Me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Catch that? They were teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. So the question is, am I treating this tradition as holy and inspired when God's Word is the only holy and inspired source that we have? We must be careful not to go around judging each other because they don't hold to our exact spiritual traditions. If we confront a brother, it's because they don't hold to a truth of God's Word, not whether or not they follow my tradition. And that changes everything because Jesus is confronted for not following a man-made tradition when He wrote the book. He had to chuckle a little bit. Verses 19 and 20. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. And Jesus here brings them back to the purpose. He brings them back to the reason for the tradition. He's basically asking them, do you remember why you fast? Do you remember why you're doing this? You're doing this to be closer to God, to draw the Messiah closer, to repent so He can be closer? The thing is, I'm here. I'm here. So if you're still trying to repent and come closer to Me, and that's why you're not coming close to Me, you're missing the point. And the third point there is traditions must not lose sight of the biblical truth they were based on. They must not lose sight of the biblical truth they were based on. And that's what had happened here. And so Jesus confronts their focus. He draws them back to the real point that the bridegroom is here. The Messiah is here. And in 19 and 20, he answers their specific question. In 21 and 22, he gives a general principle about traditions. 
But his specific answer is to fast in the presence of the groom is unthinkable. And their weddings were big deals. You think the royal wedding was a big deal? Their weddings would go for like a week. And it would be all celebrating and dancing and, and a giant party for a week. And to, to fast or mourn during that time in front of the groom, that was unthinkable. Unthinkable. That was, that was such an insult. And so Jesus is drawing on, on the, the culture of the day and saying, you would never think about doing that. But in the Old Testament, the Messiah is described as the groom that Israel marries and eventually the church marries. And so if you fast and are gloomy and and down while I'm here, that is an insult. One of the pictures going around the internet was uh, during the kiss at the royal wedding. The little girl, I don't know if you saw it, she was going... (laughs) Probably the noise of the crowd, I, I hope. Uh, or the helicopters, or things like that. But it caught people's eye because at that moment, that action was inappropriate. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am here. Throughout the Old Testament, Hosea chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 54, Jeremiah chapter 31, the Messiah is referenced as the groom and the people that come to him as the bride. And their tradition missed the point that we are married as Christians, as believers, we are married to the Messiah. And it's a time of celebration when He comes for His bride. When we say, I do, we are accepting salvation. And the royal wedding has occurred. See, longing for the Messiah good. Longing for the Messiah when He's already in front of you? Bad. To put it just in basic terms. And they needed to go back to the reason they were fasting instead of elevating fasting to what needed to happen. The question we have to ask then is do we know the purpose of this tradition? Does it still accomplish that purpose? We should ask that of everything we do spiritually. Do I know the reason why I'm doing this? Or has it become just something I do? It's something we should ask of every ministry at Village every year. Why do we do this? Why do we do three songs and a prayer in three songs? Maybe we don't have to. But why do we do the things that we do and are they still pointing to Christ? Because if if it has devolved into just something that I, I like to do myself and that brings me comfort and just that's the way we've always done it, then we've lost the point. And when we ask that question, It's not about canning ministries. Sometimes it is. Sometimes a ministry just needs to go bye-bye. But it's not about canning ministries. It's about remembering why we do them and coming back to the purpose. We don't have to change tradition. We have to remember tradition and why it's tradition. 
Point number four, we'll do five with next week's verses because it's a transition into the next ones. But point number four is again out of verses 19 and 20. Healthy traditions bring us back to the joy of being in Christ rather than drudgery. Healthy traditions bring us back to the joy of being in Christ rather than drudgery. The kingdom of God is not a funeral wake, it's a wedding. It's a wedding. And we're not just spectators. We're getting married. And when we think about why we do what we do, when we think about the traditions we have in place, have they become a burden? Or do they contribute to the joy of knowing our Lord? Irma Bombeck once tells a story about a, in church a child turned around and was just smiling at people. Kids do that, don't they? They just turn around and smile at people. Her mother swatted her and said, Stop that grinning. You're in church. (laughs) There, that's better. When we evaluate anything we do spiritually, is it bringing us to appreciate the joy of the Lord? Or like the Pharisees, have they placed burdens that are taking people away from the Lord? Notice I use the word joy, not happy, and not easy. It doesn't mean that spiritual disciplines are easy or fun. But in the end, as they draw us into a deeper relationship with our Lord, it brings a joy and a contentment and a peace that is beyond compare. Traditions, good or bad. Four principles today. Next week we'll look at six more. For ten total, as we look at the other two stories. But I challenge you that Jesus' point here is why are we doing what we're doing? Is it coming back to a focus on Christ? Or has it just become an entity of its own? May we always focus on our Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, as we come to your teaching, may, may your Spirit convict us. Lord, with the things that I do with my family this week, May I remember to be passing on why we do them. May I remember that it's about a passion for you. Lord, I pray that we would not throw out the tools that have been handed down to us, but that we would learn to use them correctly. May we not be the Pharisees, but may we crave our relationship with you. In your name, amen.